Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Chuck Jones. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I am 82 years old, and um, which could happen to anybody. I mean, be a, lot of, a lot of people are headed in that direction at any rate. And um, but um, Oliver Wendell Holmes, you notice how I bring in all this culture. Um, Oliver Wendell Holmes said that uh, when he was a little older than I am, he said uh, he, somebody asked him how it felt to be an old man. He said, uh, "I don't feel like an old man. I feel like a young man that has something the matter with him." <laughs> I said. And he says, some beautiful little chick went across the way, and he grabbed his friend by the arm and said, oh, to be 70 again. <laughs> so you can see there's, there's life in the ancient frame. A uh, nice thing about being an animator is that, you, of course, you can create. Uh, if, you, if you can't do it yourself, you can animate somebody who can, uh, like Pepe Le Pew, for instance. And it's just as well that we cut off what Pepe is doing off stage because... It's it's uh, really disheartening to see how much he makes a shambles out of the Hayes office. Uh, a very sexy skunk. I noticed that today the name uh, Maurice Noble got some applause from a knowledgeable audience. Yeah. So <laughs> I wanted to start by asking you about... He's still there, obviously, and uh, he came out of retirement long enough to, to do this film. Maurice came out. He's uh, 87 or 83, or anyways, older than I am, by God. <laughs> Not that it means much, you know, when you begin to add them. At the, after 82, it doesn't really matter a hell of a lot, I guess. And I remembered was that, uh, again, off subject, but something that stuck in my mind was what, what John L. Lewis said about William Green. He was head of the uh, mine workers, and Green was head of the AFL. And he said... Uh, he said, Green doesn't have a head. He said, his, his neck just grew up and haired over. <laughs> <laughs> so a frog doesn't have any hair, but, but that's what it looks like, you know. It looked like his body grew up and sort of slimed over, I guess. And so, uh, but I felt we've got to get this frog to be, to be very believable in a very short time. So when he pulls himself up out of the can, he slips a little bit, and and when he blinks, he blinks upward. The blink goes upward. Now that may sound ridiculous. That uh, uh, who knows that? I know it. <laughs> <laughs> so I put it in. By God, and you better be impressed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, the thing is, you have to do that kind of thing. I mean, if you because you, you got to you got to believe it yourself. You have to believe the character. You've got to believe in Daffy Duck. You've got to believe in these characters. A live-action a live action director, an animation director, is very much like an actor. He moves from role to role. He does not, like a comic strip, he, he doesn't want the characters are not funny-looking. My frog looks exactly, I hope, like a frog. Bugs Bunny looks like Bugs Bunny. He may not look like a rabbit, but he sure as hell uh, looks, he looks like Bugs Bunny. He has an anatomy, and he moves like Bugs Bunny. In the same sense that Daffy has an anatomy, and he moves like, like Daffy. 
I have one. I can only move according to whatever dubious skeleton I have, and it's, it's being replaced part by part. <laughs> uh, I have a new hip. I have part of an, of, of an ankle. I have a pacemaker. Uh, I have an insatiable appetite for martinis. Uh, and, you know, in other words, I'm becoming more like the Tin Man. Um, <laughs> but again, I can only move according to the way the, the structure that I'm, I'm in, in some time in my life I'm stuck with. <laughs> um, many of your greatest cartoons are, in effect, pantomimes. That, that um, there's no dialogue. The Roadrunner series is basically a pantomime series. The Run, Fro Run Froggy Evening has no dialogue. I, was, I had a few questions about that. One is whether there was an influence from silent, silent comedy, the films of Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, on your development. Well, I, I uh, when I was a kid, about seven or eight years old, just after the First World War, my father had a an orange grove on Sunset Boulevard, opposite uh, on Sunset Boulevard, opposite uh, Hollywood High School, and uh, he didn't see any future in in films, but he saw a future in oranges, and so we had quite a large orange grove there. And and as far as I was concerned, I didn't realize that that I was different than other little boys, and I didn't realize that every little boy in the world couldn't go out and sit on his front steps and see Mary Pickford ride by on a white horse at the head of the 160th Infantry of the Rainbow Division of the First World War. I figured that was, anybody could do that. And so it wasn't impressive to me. And uh, it, it wasn't impressive, although it was extremely interesting to go down and watch Chaplin at work. It was two blocks from our house, and we could go down there and look through this, this uh, fence and watch Chaplin shoot. But he was very disappointing to me because... I'd seen his films, and to see him out there doing things over and over and over again, which I thought was ridiculous, because in his films he didn't do things over and over again, <laughs> and uh, so I didn't, I, you know, I didn't quite understand the concept. But uh, my father told me one time he came home from from over there. He did get into films in, in one way or another, but mostly the other. Uh, and um, <laughs> he said he saw Chaplin do a one scene, 132 times. And the thing is that he, what he did was that he, it was a little thing where, you know, that little choppy run that all the comedians use where they hop on one leg when they went around a corner and been chased by cops. And uh, he wanted to, it was this one called for him to do it in the ice, which he couldn't do in Southern California because there wasn't any ice. So what he did was put down a oil cloth and then oil it. <laughs> so then he tried to do this thing, and of course his feet would slip out from under him. And it ran maybe, his father said it ran about 15 seconds. And he shot it 132 times before he had it right. Hmm. And that, that stuck with me, that idea of 132. I thought he was lying, but I didn't, my father did lie. I mean, after all, he promised my mother a genius and didn't deliver. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning me. And <laughs> let me give you a very quick run-through on the way I work at Warner Brothers, because it was different than it was at, at Disney's. There were three units there uh, in the very early days. There were Tex Avery and Bob Clampett and, uh, and, and me. And, uh, and, and later, Chris Freeling came over from MGM. And uh, so from 1946 on, when Clampett had long, long gone and Tex had gone to, uh, uh, to MGM, uh, there, Bob, Bob McKimson and Chris Freeling and I directed all the films from 1946 until they closed the studio in '63. I don't know where they are, but I know when Tex was dying, and he knew he was, he was in a hospital and uh, with a friend, and he said, uh, 
He said, I don't know where, where animators go when they die. They probably don't need another animator. <laughs> but then he thought a minute and he said, but, but uh, Freddie said, I bet they can use a good director. He <laughs> <laughs> was a very gallant man and a very funny man, a very shy man, godly enough. And uh, can you consider how raucous his stuff was that he had never thought that he never he wouldn't think of him as being shy. But I find, at least my experience has been, that all great men are shy, and all great women are shy too. That there's a, and, and all of us are uncertain. I, I have that in, at least in, in common with greatness, and that is that I, I can't ever look at a finished anything I do uh, with any confidence. I can only see there's mistakes. So whatever, whatever else that I, I may have, I don't know. That's for you to decide. I mean, your laughter decides it. However, uh, so anyway, so you, you do these layouts and so on. Uh, uh, but you, first of all, you have to design the character. On live action, when the script is completed, the director says, fine, I want to make this film. Then you have what they call a casting session when they send in actors of all various kinds and the director or, his, uh, or his, uh, his, whoever works with him will, will, do, will select the actor to play that part. Uh, our equivalent of that was in what was to, like with Pepe Le Pew, I, I knew that I wanted a sexy skunk, but I had never seen him. <laughs> <laughs> I knew what he would do, but I had to figure out, when the, so my casting session then was to sit down and start drawing skunks. And they were terrible. As you saw here on the coyote, the coyote is a lot different today than he was then. He had a big, kind of long, spotty nose. Uh, so I had that session, but I didn't really, uh, I, I know I improved him, but I certainly changed him over a period of time. Pepe changed a bit too, but you have to use him immediately, so your first casting session. So getting back, <laughs> this doesn't usually work out, but getting back to that 132 times the chaplain shot, we didn't do that. We could not do it. We could not shoot a scene over and over again. But I have, in, in an effort to find a single drawing, and I don't mean that this point is when I'm trying to make, find out what Pepe is. I must have made 500 drawings of Pepe before I got the character the way I wanted him. Uh, but, but I have very often in the picture drawn 50 times, 50 drawings of a character uh, in a particular situation. You may remember, did you, did you run uh, Feed the Kitty? Yeah, yeah we did. Well, you know that scene where he went, me? You know, and she came and said, what are you, are you, what are you up to now? And he said, me? And he didn't say it, but I God, it was hard to get that drawing right. And, and I worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. Didn't, it didn't work, you know. I had never drawn a bulldog saying me without saying it. <laughs> <laughs> and looking, in, you know, with a wonderful feeling of incredulity. I, I, I really liked that picture. I really fell in love with that damn dog. And uh, he was so touching. And, and when the lady said, I don't know what's bothering you. She said, here, she gives the, the dog that damn cookie, and, I, <laughs> and the dog takes it and put it in the back, and, and, and they cry. You know, I do. I, I really do. And I didn't intend it that way. By God, I thought I was being funny. And I found out I was being, I felt a true sense of, of, of sorrow about this little guy. And so, I, I, let me very quickly, then. so having done those layouts, having timed every scene in the picture, and uh, including how long the scenes were, the, uh, I mean, physically long if the guy's running, so on. And uh, and then uh, you call the animators in and go over the entire story with them, 
and then you hand out the you hand out uh, sections to each of the animators. They weren't specialists. I like animators to be able to do lots of things and uh, to try, you know, and, and I think that's where the fun is, the variety of it. And um, so then uh, the animator takes it away and animates on it, and he has an assistant animator that follows him up, the guys who want to become animators. And in the meantime, Maurice Noble, I just give him the storyboard, which is very rough. The storyboard is not what's going to appear on the screen because most guys that do the writers are not very good artists. So I I just hand the idea to Maurice and say, while I'm doing the character drawings, I want you to plan the the scenics, the back act as the art director, and that's what they would do. So he would get it. He would be designing the film, uh, the terms of the backgrounds, layouts, and so on, while I was doing the other thing. And then uh, that pretty much takes care of the creativity. From that point on, it's. Uh, it's ink and paint and uh, donkey work, really, and a camera. But a cameraman doesn't—he has no—he has no, no volition. All he can do is what he's told to do. So when you give a cameraman a, an animation or an editor uh, 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 credits, you're, you're you're not really being fair to anybody else because it's all been done for him. All he does is put the background down, put the cell over, pull the thing down, push a button, and do it again. Uh, it, it is not artistic, but there are certain people who seem to like to do it, and it has kind of a wonderful routine to it. But you have to think about how slow he's moving, because that uh, it takes him it takes him probably two hours to get to get three seconds done. So he can't. It isn't very moving, even the Roadrunner. So that that's really the way we worked at Warner Brothers. They didn't work that way in any other studio that I know of. When is the soundtrack completed, or the relationship of the soundtrack to when you're doing the animation? Because you have a brilliant composer, Carl Stalling, and great sound effects people. So do they actually create the soundtrack and record it before it, it, the it, drawings? Yeah, it varied. Uh, if you're doing uh, What's Opera Doc, uh, we would work with the music, and uh, we took the storyboard, and then I'd make a bunch of, of uh, kind of layout drawings and Maurice would do some what we call inspirational sketches. Mm. Then we'd pull the musician in and we'd go over the story. And like we, on What's Opera, Doc, we took the, the, the entire ring of the Nibelung, which runs 14 hours, and squashed it down to six minutes. Mm. <laughs> but the music that was played was honest. I mean, that was really, each section was not squashed. It was just that we took out sections that we particularly liked. Because it, it, it's le majeste to... to, uh, to Take that great music and do anything with it that is uh, is unfair. And I, uh, I mean, the fact that when I went to Germany the, and, and visited his grave, I, the fact that I could hear a whirring sound—I don't know—Wagner, <laughs> that is. Mark Twain said that uh, uh, Wagner's music is better than it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> And I think if you, if you listen to the whole 14 hours, you'd think, you'd think so, too. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he had fun with the German language, you know. He, he said that uh, German language is the only language in the world that, that has perspective. The words have perspective. They're so long and go in the distance. <laughs> you worked with characters that had uh, personalities, and you had to work with the personalities. And then you also created uh, cartoons where... In the example of Dot and the Line or the High Note, where they had no even set uh, 
personality, you know, with language rhythmic line moving more the note, walk. Uh, what was the difference and which did you prefer? Uh, as far as I'm concerned, the characters did have personality, but I didn't do it the same way. We were determined on dot and the line that, that uh, we would keep, uh, like Cezanne or Matisse, that we would keep everything on the surface. We'd, we were trying to avoid any depth or roundness, and we didn't use any, anything. But, but in that case, what I was looking for, and to a certain extent, uh, how the Grinch told Christmas, the personality of the narrator was so vital. And uh, Robert Morley uh, imbued into the dot on the line, he was able to shift over from character to character. But I was determined on that one. Because it was a little book, you see, and I didn't want to change the book by putting faces on it or anything like that. So, yeah, it was different. There's no question about it. It's a different way of approaching. The question has to do with, with, with favorites like with Norton Juster, who wrote The Dot and the Lion, and Dr. Seuss, of course. Uh, the, um, I don't have favorites of anything. Uh, you know, it's like having, ch if you have four or five children, you're going to have a favorite, but you better keep it to yourself. <laughs> Because it really is really a problem. <laughs> and you owe every character that you work with the very best that you have. I haven't always been able to be, do so, but my intent always is that, that Daffy Duck des deserves as much of my attention as does Bugs Bunny or Dr. Seuss or anybody else. You, you, you owe any audience the best that you can do. I, that may sound rather you know, noble, but, but it's also practical. Uh, and, and so you don't ever have to worry about it. You say, I can kiss this one off. You can't. If you ever think you can approach any subject by saying, I, I can do it, this is a snap, uh, that, that, that hurts, every, it hurts the audience, it hurts you worse than anything. So you have to approach everyone with great intensity. And that's why when we do uh, What's Opera Doc, for instance, the music is played by an 80-piece orchestra and it's played correctly. It's played the way it should be played. And, and but, but the fact that Bugs Bunny and Elmer are in front of it, and, and they, I always felt that they are at trying to do it right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Maurice uh, talked to me and he said, you know, that's pro we have a real problem on this picture because he said, and we, wa we want this to feel like the classic ballet, and, uh, and yet he said, we don't have any flesh tones and we don't have the tutus, you know, that sort of thing. So he said, he, I said, well, think about it, see if you can come up with an idea. I'll do anything, you know, because we talked this back and forth. He said, well, uh, he came back later and he said, why don't I paint the background in flesh tones and the trees like tutus, which he did. And if you look at it, you'll see that during that whole sequence, it's all flesh toned backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's, you're left subliminally, you know, I talked it over with Sigmund Freud, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and he agreed, you know. And, and so, we, uh, anyway, uh, so you do look for things like that. And that opening, which was a tribute, uh, a very sweet tribute, we felt, to Night on Ball Mountain, because uh, uh, Bill Teitler, who animated that and also animated Stromboli, was our Michelangelo, you know, powerful, beautiful strong stuff. So Abe Levito animated that. He also had this remarkable, powerful way of drawing. And I loved laying that out, those the shadows and so, <laughs> so on. So yeah, that's uh see I, I don't know you probably don't realize how how cultural we were. <laughs> I know you don't. <laughs>
Whose idea was it to use Boris Karloff? Je. Moi. <laughs> because, you see, uh, yeah, Boris Karloff or the, or the Grinch. You know, Fred, uh, uh, Dr. Seuss, Ted Geisel, did not know uh, anything about Karloff. Uh, he knew that he played all those parts, as everybody did. And uh, that he played the, you know, the monsters and so on. But a lot, many people had never known that he, and you probably could still get the records or a disc today of him telling the Just So stories and the, uh, the, the Kipling book and all that stuff. And I'd heard it, I'd read it. And what was curious, of course, was that when we did the Jungle Book, I haven't seen the new one, but I, but I mean, when we did uh, Ricky Tiki Toppy and the White Seal, the White Seal was from the Jungle Book, curiously enough. I, I didn't think Disney took the trouble to find out how to pronounce the boy's name, M-O-W-G-L-I. And in, in, in uh, recordings made in the 1930s and 40s, uh, Karloff called it Mowgli. And uh, my father, when I was six years old, called it Mowgli. Well, Kipling's daughter was still alive. He was not. So I, wrote, I called her up on the telephone. And I said, uh, we're, I'm going to do Ricky Tiki Tavi on the screen for television. And I said... Uh, but there's one thing that puzzles me. I said, how do you pronounce M-O-W-G-L-I? And this wonderful old voice came out of there, like Edna Mae Oliver, and she said, you pronounce it Mowgli. She said, I hate Walter Disney. <laughs> and that was the first time I ever heard him call Walter. <laughs> Okay, you, said, you said that you did a lot of the characters just for fun, but how did you decide what characters you wanted to go on and keep doing? There's not a day in my life that I don't make 20 drawings. From the first time I started drawing till today, I, I can't get through a day because when I, well, some people call them doodles, but they're not. They're just drawings. Uh, the decision about, I don't know how you do anything. I don't know why you decide to do anything. You know, you go into a restaurant and you open the menu and say, the lamb, lamb chops look good. How the hell do you know? They're here? They're in the kitchen. <laughs> they look good, you know, they look good. No... <laughs> Carrots look good. <laughs> Ridiculous. I don't know how I pick out a character, I, but it's a good question. I just wish I, wish I, I wish I had a rational answer, but I don't have it. It just comes a point where something seems to work. So you, you say, that looks like it's going to work, and you try it. But in animation, you also have to try it out to see whether it'll move right or not. I don't pay any attention to the audience. I don't see how you can. I used to watch the guys in the, in the, in the, the, the features, you know, and they, they uh, I don't know of any director who doesn't do this. And that is to take, if he takes the picture out to preview and, and, and he doesn't get what he, a response he wants, he'll go to another theater. <laughs> Until he finds out, you know, he'll find somebody that does like it. Which leads us again to the whole idea, what is the difference between tragedy? I mean, comedy is always concerned with simple matters. A coyote wants to catch a roadrunner. That's a simple matter. Well, something to eat. Uh, Charlie Chaplin's looking for some place to, to sit, to get something to eat, to act well as a, 
as a waiter, to hand a girl a rose. All these things, very simple. Comedy is built on that. And I think, obviously, that is why we are so much more devoted to comedy than we ever can be to grand tragedy. It's just too big, and, and giant tragedies don't happen to, to us all the time, and very, very seldom the gods came roaring down out of the heavens, you know. Was, was Dr. Seuss um, involved in the private snafu cartoons? And a lot of his cartoons are now coming back, being re-released. Just what's your feeling about yeah, that? Yeah, uh, well, yes, of course. Uh, and Dr. Seuss did work at uh, what they called um, Fort Western, which is Western Avenue and Sunset Boulevard. And Frank Capra was the colonel in charge there. Ted uh, Geisel, that's Dr. Seuss, was the captain. And that was during the war. And a number of other people that we worked with uh, and and he, uh, Dr. Seuss and, and several people, Otto England there, who had been Disney writer on Dumbo and other things, and a number of people that worked at Disney's worked with him, and they wrote the stories, and, and I directed about a half of them. Pris did a few, and so the other guys uh, and directed a few of those. Uh, the only that's the only time I really knew what the audience was like. Uh, most training films, as anybody's ever been in the army, knows how bad most training films are. Uh, they're bad, and at that time they were terribly bad because they were made by, by army people or, or uh, well, let's put it this way. Animation was a very good way to do a, tra a training film because if you use live action, uh, if you used uh, soldiers trying to act, they couldn't act. And if you used actors pretending like they were soldiers, you would, uh, only in Orange County where we live, uh, do people not know the difference between a hero and some people who act as a hero? Uh, I mean, Ronald Reagan and, uh, and and John Wayne are considered heroes, and I, and I think as actors, uh, John Wayne was a marvelous guy, but but uh, he certainly was not a hero, except you know, like others, he was brave when he got cancer, but uh, but. But everybody in Orange County thinks he, you know, that he won the war. Uh, it's, a pretty, it's a funny place to live, and I, actually, it's particularly funny now. I thought we, <laughs> I can tell you because we we don't think the way they do, and uh, you know, after I, I I really wouldn't vote for Genghis Khan if he came back to life, but but they all would, you see, and we have to separate them. So. Uh, um, it's a little, so when this thing, this scandal hit, Marion and I just went crazy. Wonderful about time, by God. <laughs> uh, they're so pious. And, uh, Pope pious. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> well, contrary to common belief, uh, Mel Blanc never brought us a, a voice. Uh, he was the, one of the most brilliant uh, actors I've ever known, uh, very much, very, uh, extraordinarily quick. He was able to transfer his personality when we told him, but every line was carefully crafted by the writer and by the director. I, I worked hard on the dialogue because I, I didn't want any fat in there. I mean, a line written for Daffy could never have been delivered by Bugs, and, and, and a line for Pepe Le Pew was a special line written expressly for him. When the actor came in, uh, he had never seen the storyboard. And he, uh, Mel would come in about an hour before we were to record the film. I'd go over the storyboard with him and then carefully, then if it was Bugs and Daffy, for instance, I would read uh, uh, 
Bugs's lines, and he would read, he would read Daffy, and then we'd reverse the situation, and I'd be Daffy, and he'd be Bugs. So that if, if uh, uh, Daffy was saying, "Let's run through that again," I'd say, "Boom!" Then he'd play it back. Let's run through that again, and he'd say, uh, "Oh, well, say okay," he'd say, uh, "Shoot them now, shoot them now." And because of the time, now you have to see that that uh, it took us five weeks to do a six-minute cartoon. So a lot of time was ta taken up in writing the dialogue and, and delivering it. Yes. When Warner Brothers decided to, that they, in their foolish way, that they wanted to hire a man of my age to, to make some more cartoons, my condition was this, that I would not go in and make cartoons unless I could do it with young people. And that I wanted and felt it vital and necessary for Warner Brothers and uh, to reconvene the idea of Termite Terrace, young people doing cartoons. The end purpose of my going to work for Warner Brothers was do away with me. I mean, in three years, I don't want to be there. I want, I want the young people to have, just have learned what is necessary to make cartoons, to make new adventures of old char characters, and, and to come up with fresh characters and new adventures. And that's what they are. The people that animated this were all of them. Uh, I think the oldest one was, in, was maybe 32, and the youngest one was 19, which is pretty much the way it ran in our studio. As I said, when I went in the business, I was, uh, I was uh, not quite 18, and the old man was Disney, and he was 29. <laughs> it's hard to believe that Walt Disney was under 40 by the time he had finished Snow White, The Seven Doors, and Fantasia. It was a young man's, today it's a young person's game. So we have women and men. The, the, uh, uh, the musician we have is George Doherty. He's 35, and, uh, but he's a, a great student of, uh, of, of Milt Franklin and, and uh, Carl Stalling. Uh, uh, Maurice came in long enough to help. This was all, the backgrounds were all painted and designed by young people, with Maurice hovering over them to help them. And then he went back into, not into retirement, because he went back to doing, he, uh, doing watercolors and stuff like that. So it, it, uh, that was the whole point. Very kind of a curious thing when you look at it objectively. that when I came into the business, <coughs> there were a bunch of old men, and I use the term old men, running our business. And Leon Schlesinger and those guys were, were between, you know, 40, 40s and early 50s. A bunch of old men running our business. Well, today, at 82, I look back and let's see, there's a bunch of young men, 45 or 50, <laughs> running the business. <laughs> but the, uh, the artists have to be, I don't want to hire, I want to hire people. And so they, there are two, they're trying to set up a feature unit over there, too, and hiring people like that for that purpose. But that's not our business. My business is short subjects, and I love it, and I enjoy it. I have a new book coming out. And, uh, of course, the Peter and the Wolf book is advertised in the uh, in, um, New York Times this week. Chuckamuck 2 or something like that? Hmm? Chuckamuck 2? Well, yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's, uh, it's uh, Chuckamuck Redux. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so, it's spelled D-U-C-K. That's, that's what we're doing. And, and uh, so come here and hear you guys seeming to enjoy the things that we did. And hopefully enjoying the things of the future. Why we, I'm certainly grateful to you because all the years we were making cartoons, we never, ever had any direct contact with an audience. 
and nobody ever wrote about us during those years. And the sad thing is that people like like Tex Avery and uh, you know and Bob Clampett and those guys uh, never lived long enough to uh, to to get the recognition. It really started in France the same way that you know American <laughs> jazz really got its first recognition in France too. A wonderful book called Les Jazz Hot, <laughs> which I thought was a perfect and wonderful name. Yeah. So these guys started writing about American animation long ago. I mean, they started in the 1960s even. But it's a rebirth, I think, mm-hmm. and I'm doing my best to see to it that it happens. Well, I don't know that I serve as a midwife, but, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's a, anyway, thank you so much for coming. Okay. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.